Well, good morning. My name is Brian, and this morning we're going to be considering Christmas according to Exodus. Christmas according to Exodus. Were there gifts exchanged at your house yesterday? Do you have criterion for what makes a good gift? I think those criterion may vary from person to person. For some of you, a good gift may be something that is thoughtful. For others, it may be something that's useful, right? Something that has a purpose. Some of you may find a good gift to be something that's exquisite or extravagant. Or maybe you're the kind of person who a good gift is something that you've wanted for a long time. Well, for me, I find that sometimes knowing the story behind the gift gives me a new appreciation for the gift. So last year, I was given a pair of used shoes. These shoes, actually. And uh, used shoes may not sound like a very good gift, but you see, these used shoes were given to me by my mom. And these shoes used to be my dad's shoes. My mom gave them to me at my dad's passing. And so these shoes are very special to me. She gave me a lot of his wardrobe at that time. And whenever I put his wardrobe on, it feels like I'm getting a hug from somebody that I can't hug anymore. You see, sometimes knowing the story behind the gift makes you have a new appreciation for the gift that has been given. And that's what I want to do this morning as we consider Christmas according to Exodus. I want to go back to the story of Exodus to help us appreciate the gift of Christmas. And as we consider Christmas according to Exodus this morning, we're going to do it under three headings. First, we're going to look at the Passover, the Passover in Exodus chapter 12. Then we're going to look at the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40. And finally, we're going to consider the mystery of Christmas from John 1. So the Passover, the tabernacle, and the mystery of Christmas. And here's what I'm going to tell you this morning. The mystery of Christmas is that the glory of God became the Passover lamb so that we might enter into his glory. Let me say that again. The mystery of Christmas is that the, pass, is that the glory of God became the Passover lamb that we might enter into his glory. And as we think about glory this morning, I'm going to be leaning heavily on C.S. Lewis. I find that C.S. Lewis's combination of logic and imagination helps me understand ideas sometimes that I'm grasping for, ideas that can be too lofty for me. But before we consider this, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we go back 3,400 years to look at Exodus to understand the history behind Christmas. Father, I pray that you would convince us of our sin and misery, that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and that you would renew our wills. By the power of your gospel, through the work of your Holy Spirit, and the mediation of your Son, 
I ask that you would forgive the one who teaches his sins, for they are many. May we see Jesus in him only. Amen. So first of all, then, let's consider the Passover, and this is in Exodus chapter 12. But before we get to it, I want to give you a little backstory. Let's, let's give you some run-up to understand Exodus 12. So in Exodus chapter 1, Israel is in Egypt, and they're enslaved, and they're in bondage for 400 years. And in Exodus chapter 2, God begins to raise up a deliverer named Moses. And at the end of chapter 2, he remembers his covenant. And in the beginning of chapter 3, God meets with Moses and he expresses himself in a burning bush, in fire that does not consume the bush. And he calls Moses to go and deliver his people out of the bondage of slavery, out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt. And he promises to Moses this. He says, I will be with you. And in Exodus chapter 4, God gives Moses signs to authenticate that Moses is the deliverer. And then in Exodus chapter 5, God sends Moses and Aaron to meet with Pharaoh. And he says, thus says Yahweh. And Yahweh is that Hebrew name for God that shows up in your Old Testament as Lord in all caps. And Yahweh is a scrunched up, condensed version of God's promise that he will be with his people. And so Exodus 5 begins, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh? Who is this God of Israel? And by the way, no, I will not let Israel go. And thus begins an epic showdown, a showdown to end all showdowns. It's between Yahweh, the God of Israel on one side, and Pharaoh and all the deities of Egypt on the other. And do you know what they're fighting over? They're fighting over Israel. They're fighting over Israel who is in bondage, and God wants to set his people free. And Pharaoh says no. And so the plagues come. And the plagues are Yahweh going to war against the gods of Egypt to set his people free. You remember what the first plague is? The first plague is the Nile turning to blood. Now, Egypt was a desert, and so the Nile provided life. 98% of Egyptians lived within a half mile of the Nile because they needed a source of water in the desert. And what does Yahweh do? He turns the Nile to blood. The Egyptians called the Nile the god Hopi, and so Hopi is now dead. He can no longer provide for the needs of Egypt. And do you remember the fifth plague? In the fifth plague, all of the livestock die. And this is Yahweh declaring his supremacy over the Egyptian bull gods of Nemes and Apis and the ram god, Kum. And then the ninth plague comes, and God blots out the sun. And you, remember, you may remember that in Egypt, Ra, the sun god, was one of the main deities of Egypt. And Yahweh is declaring his supremacy over Ra, the god of the sun. 
And as God is going to war with all of these Egyptian gods, He's also doing something else. He's also wooing the people of Israel. He says in Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7, He says to Moses, "'Say therefore to the people, I am Yahweh.'" And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." You see, Yahweh is doing these miraculous acts because He wants Israel to know Him. He wants Israel to know that He is the kind of God who delivers His people out of bondage. And He doesn't just deliver them. He adopts them as His people. You see, it's one thing to set someone free, but it's something else entirely to grant them an inheritance, to call them son, to call them daughter. But as Yahweh engages and sends the ten plagues, He also wants the Egyptians to know that He is God. In Exodus 7.5, He says, "...the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh." when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. In other words, there's an evangelistic component to the ten plagues. And then, then we come to plague number ten. And plague ten is the death of the firstborn. And this is an attack against Pharaoh himself. And Pharaoh is considered a god in Egypt, and Pharaoh can do nothing to stop the power of Yahweh. And here are the instructions that God gives around the tenth plague. Focus your attention with me on Exodus chapter 12, starting at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and to Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first day of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its leg, legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning." Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. 
In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, and your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord." The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. What are the instructions here as we come to the tenth plague? The Lord is going to pass through Egypt. He's going to strike all of the firstborn. Do you know who the firstborn is in your family? Do you know who's going here? But God provides a way out. He says, take a lamb, a one-year-old lamb without blemish, and sacrifice that lamb. Cover the doorposts and the lentil of your house in blood. And when God sees that blood, He's going to pass over that house. You see, there's a death in every household that night. The only question is whether it's the death of a firstborn son or the death of a substitutionary sacrifice, the death of a sacrificial lamb. And many took refuge that night in the blood of the lamb, and death passed them by. Death passed them over. And God uses the Passover here at the completion of the ten plagues to deliver His people from bondage. Israel had been enslaved for 400 years, and now, at last, they're free. And so, Passover was a memorial day. It was a feast to be celebrated year after year. It was their celebration of independence. It was their July 4th. It was their Juneteenth. It was a declaration once we were in bondage, but now we're free. And it was such a significant day in the life of Israel that they reset their calendar. Did you catch that in verse 2? This month shall be for you the beginning of months. They're beginning their year over. This is the first month. And so that's the Passover. Yahweh defeating Egypt's gods to deliver His people from bondage as they hide in the blood of the Lamb. And it's a memorial feast that resets their whole calendar. The Passover. But then we have, secondly, the tabernacle, the tabernacle. And the run-up to Exodus 40 begins all the way in Exodus 25. Exodus 25 to 31 give us an incredibly detailed set of instructions for how to build the tabernacle. 
and you get the purpose for the tabernacle in Exodus 25 and verse 8. God says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. You see, God has not only delivered them from bondage, He wants to dwell with them. He wants to be their God, and for them to be His people, He wants to commune with them. He wants to give them the gift of His presence. And God's presence was lost in the fall, and we've been looking to get back to it ever since. Adam and Eve used to walk with God in the garden in the cool of the day, right? That beautiful, sweet communion. But it was lost in the fall. And so when God starts over with His promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, He gives the promise of His presence. He promises that He will be with His people. And that's the purpose of the tabernacle, that God may dwell in their midst. In Exodus 35, the people of Israel begin to build the tabernacle in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And when they're finished, we have this in Exodus chapter 40. Look at Exodus chapter 40, starting at verse 32. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys, wherever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys." So, Israel could look towards the tabernacle and see a physical manifestation of the presence of God. They could look over and they could see a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, and they could be reminded of God's presence. You see, God's presence is represented by cloud and fire throughout the Old Testament, Do you remember in Genesis chapter 15 when God makes a covenant with Abraham? And it comes to the critical part, right? God has Abraham cut the animals in half and put a half of the animal on either side so that the path is covered in blood. And they would have followed the typical pact-making scenario in ancient Near Eastern customs where the two people would have walked between those dead animals together saying, may the same thing happen to me that's happened to these animals if I break the covenant. But you remember, Abraham falls asleep in the corner, and it's only God who walks through the pieces. And do you remember how he's represented as he walks through the pieces? 
as a smoking pot and a flaming torch, right? It's cloud and fire. Or in Exodus chapter 3, as God appears to Moses, remember, he appears to Moses in a bush that's on fire, but the fire does not consume the bush, right? God appears in cloud and fire over and over again. And so as God in Exodus chapter 40 fulfills his promise to be with his people, to dwell in their midst, as God fulfills his promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, as he fulfills the promise that answers what we lost in the fall, as he fulfills the promise that answers one of the deepest longings of our hearts. How is he represented? He's represented by cloud and by fire. And so Israel could look up and see at any time, God is with us. And they would know that God fulfills His promises. But did you notice that God is a God who under-promises and over-delivers? He promised, He promised His presence. He promised to dwell with His people. But Israel got more than that. Israel got His glory. Israel got His glory. And remember, this is the same glory from Exodus chapter 33 when, God, when Moses says to God, God, show me your glory. And God says, no man has seen my face and lived, but I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and my glory will pass you by. It's the same glory that Isaiah sees in Isaiah chapter 6 in the vision of the throne room of heaven right? Where God, where God describes and Isaiah sees the seraphim flying around crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is what? Full of His glory, right? It's that glory that comes and dwells in the tabernacle, I think it's hard for us to understand glory. What is glory? How do we understand glory? Let me try to give you a sense of glory this morning. Glory has a sense of beauty and honor and majesty and splendor and brilliance and radiance and perfection and holiness. But the Hebrew word for glory is kavod, which literally means weight. So the idea of glory is something with more substance, something weightier. This idea of weight. And because this is a key idea, let me try to unpack it in several ways. Remember in John chapter 20, after the resurrection, Jesus appears to the disciples. And the first time he appears to the disciples, Thomas is not with them. So he comes back in John 20, 26. And as he appears to Thomas and the other disciples, uh, there's this interesting turn of phrase. It says, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Although the doors were locked, how did Jesus get in? Knox Chamberlain, one of my New Testament professors, once speculated 
that Jesus' glorified body was more substantial than the doors. It was, had more weight than the doors, than the walls, right? And so just as a lead pipe can be drugged through water, can pass through water, perhaps Jesus' body being more substantial with more glory could pass through doors, could pass through walls, because His resurrected body, His glorified body, had more substance. C.S. Lewis unpacks this idea, uh, this idea of the weight of glory, in his little book, The Great Divorce. The Great Divorce is the story of a bus ride from hell to heaven. And the foundational idea of The Great Divorce is that heaven is more substantial than hell. And so, when people from the town below get off the bus, just at the very edge of heaven, it's painful for them to walk on the grass because the grass sticking up is more substantial than their feet, such that even the dew isn't disturbed, right? And these people from the town who have gotten off the bus are afraid of rain because rain might go right through them. And they're afraid of insects because insects might fly through them. Lewis describes the residents of hell as transparent or unsubstantial, right? You can see through them. They're just a whisper there, and they're called ghosts. And he describes the residents of heaven as bright people, radiating light, and solid people, having substance, right? And at the end of the story, they're looking for the bus station, and they discover that hell is just the smallest crack in the soil of heaven. And I'll pick up here from Lewis. I cannot be certain, he said, this is George MacDonald as the guide speaking to the bus driver, I cannot be certain, he said, that this is the crack that ye came up through, but through a crack no bigger than that ye certainly came. But, but, I gasped with a feeling of bewilderment not unlike terror, I saw an infinite abyss and cliffs towering up and up, and then this country on the top of the cliffs. Aye, but the voyage was not mere locomotion. That bus and all of you inside of it were increasing in size. Do you mean that hell, that infinite empty town, is down in some little crack like this? Yes, all hell is smaller than one pebble of your earthly world, but it is smaller than one atom of this world, the real world. Look at yon butterfly. If it swallowed up all hell, hell would not be big enough to do it any harm or to have any taste. It seems big enough when you're in it, sir. And yet, all loneliness, angers, hatreds, envies, and itchings that it contains, if rolled into one single experience and put into the scale against the least moment of joy that is felt by the least in heaven, it would have no weight that could be registered at all. 
Do you see what Lewis is telling you? He's saying that heaven is infinitely larger, it's infinitely more substantial than hell, or to say it another way, heaven has more weight. Heaven has more glory than hell. It's the weight of glory. And that glory has a certain gravity to it. When we encounter glory, we're drawn to it, right? Have you experienced this? When you encounter something excellent or praiseworthy, you're drawn to it. We're drawn to greatness. It's the reason that men's ministry took 26 men on a bus to New Orleans in November. We wanted to get up close and watch some unusually large men, some of the greatest athletes in the world, put a leather ball through a metal hoop because we're drawn to greatness. Or maybe you've experienced this in nature, standing before Niagara Falls or the Grand Canyon or the Pacific Ocean or the Rocky Mountains, or maybe it's just looking up and seeing the vastness of the stars on a really dark night, or a beautiful sunset that stops you in your tracks. They speak to something deep inside of you. Or maybe it's that feeling you have when your team wins the championship, right? When Jackson State, led by Deion Sanders, won the swag, oh, the celebration, right? You were a part of something bigger than you, something victorious. Or maybe you've felt this in music, when you hear your favorite song, or a live performance, a Broadway show, a full orchestra. Did you experience this at the Christmas cantata? There were times that I was laughing and weeping at the same time. I was moved in a way that I hadn't been in a very long time. You see, in all of these things, we're experiencing glory, and we're drawn to it. We're drawn to it. In Lewis's little essay, The Weight of Glory, he tells us that we're drawn to glory Get this, we're drawn to glory because we want to be united to it. He says it this way, and this brings me to the other sense of glory. Glory is brightness, splendor, luminosity. We are to shine as the sun. We are to be given the morning star. I think I begin to see what it means, he says. In one way, of course, God has given us the morning star already. You can go and enjoy the gift on many fine mornings if you get up early enough. What more, you may ask, do we want? Ah, but we want so much more. We want something else which can hardly be put into words. We want to be united to the beauty we see. We want to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become a part of it. You see, experiencing glory simultaneously evokes and satisfies our deepest longings. And all of the little ways that we experience glory here and now are merely signs. They're merely tastes and glimpses that whisper to our soul of the glory of God. And you see, that's the sense. That's the sense of the glory of God that fills the tabernacle. The tabernacle. 
That leads us thirdly then to the mystery of Christmas. Do you know what the mystery of Christmas was? The mystery of the incarnation? That that glory of God that once filled the tabernacle with a cloud of pillar and a cloud of fire, that glory of God became one of us. That glory took on a true body and a reasonable soul. The second person of the Trinity became an infant. The eternal one stepped into time. The infinite one stepped into space. The king of the universe was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. And in him, in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You see, Queen Lucy's words from the last battle are true. In our world too, a stable once had something inside that was bigger than our whole world. And so the Apostle John writes, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, And we beheld His glory, glory as of the only Son of God, full of grace and truth. John is saying, behold, the true and better tabernacle has come. And if that weren't enough, there's more. Do you remember how Lewis said that when we behold glory, we want more? That we want to be united to the glory? He says it this way later in The Weight of Glory, his little essay, and this is our reflection quote from this morning. We can be utterly and absolutely outside, repelled, exiled, estranged, finally and unspeakably ignored. On the other hand, we can be called in, welcomed, received, acknowledged, We walk every day on the razor edge between these two possibilities. Apparently then, he writes, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be united with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache. And he says later, at present, we are on the outside of the world. We're on the wrong side of the door. Get this, listen to this. We discern the freshness and purity of mourning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are wrestling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. You see, we have this deep longing to be united to glory, but we're cut off from it. Why? Because of sin, right? Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
And so we are on the outside of the world. We're on the wrong side of the door. You see, like the Israelites in Egypt, we too are in bondage, not to a pharaoh, but to a much more tyrannical oppressor. We're in bondage to sin and to death. But God has heard our cry and remembered His covenant and sent a deliverer. He's gone to war against our oppressors, and He's also wooing us. He's saying to you, I want to deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And how does He defeat our enemies and set us free? It's just like the Passover of old. He takes a perfect lamb, one without blemish, and sacrifices him. And for all who take refuge in the blood of the lamb, death will pass you by. Death will pass you over. Which is why John the Baptist declares in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, the true and better Passover lamb has come. But here's the secret. It's not just, it's not just that taking refuge in the blood of the lamb conquers sin and death and sets you free. Oh, brothers and sisters, that's just the beginning. As we hide in the blood of the Lamb, we are no longer on the outside of the world. We're no longer on the wrong side of the door, cut off. We're no longer repelled and exiled, estranged, finally and unspeakably ignored. No, now we are called in and welcomed and received and acknowledged. You see, He doesn't just set us free. He adopts us to be His people. He grants us an inheritance, and He calls us son. He calls us daughter. We have finally been summoned inside. Don't you see? All of our lives, we've been longing to be united to glory. We've been longing to mingle with the splendors we see. We've been longing for the freshness and purity of mourning to make us fresh and pure. And now, at long last, because the glory of God became the Passover lamb, you can put on that glory. You can be united to that glory. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You see, the mystery of Christmas is that the glory of God became the Passover lamb so that we could enter in to His glory. And that's why Christmas is a memorial day, a feast, to be celebrated year after year. You can set your calendar by it. That's Christmas according to Exodus. And I hope it gives you a new appreciation of the gift. You think about that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? 
Heavenly Father, this is a story that's been told for 3,400 years. It's an ancient story that the glory of God became the Passover lamb. And the beauty of that is that now we get to be united to your glory. Father, would you help us to put on your shoes and help us to walk in that new appreciation and to remember your goodness in giving us the gift of Jesus. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.